Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center. And we have a law nerd show today. So joining me are my fellow nerds, Matt Simmons. <laughs> hey, hey, Matt. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's Scott Greeson with Friends of the Yellow River. Hey, Scott. Hi, Tom. And Jen Marlowe, Professor of Environmental Law at Cal Poly Humboldt. Hey, Tom. So today we are talking about West Virginia v. EPA, the most recent case in which the Supreme Court is going to try to make fighting climate change difficult. So Scott, this case was heard on Monday of this week, and that same day the UN came out with a major new report that outlines dire consequences from climate change and concludes that nations aren't doing nearly enough to come up with a, a solution to this problem. So Scott, I, I know that you are taking this very seriously. What more did the United Nations have to say? Well, they said a lot, but I just want to tee up the rest of this show by quoting from Secretary General Guterres' statement, which goes farther than many environmentalists would have in recent years. Quote, I have seen many scientific reports in my time, but nothing like this. Guterres described, quote, an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. This abdication of leadership is criminal. The world's biggest polluters are guilty of arson of our only home. So, Scott, you had a line before the show started that was kind of clever and played on that arson line. What we're about to hear is how the Supreme Court is planning to make fire departments unconstitutional. Yeah, to, to fight that arson against our common home. All right, so let, let's get into the facts of West Virginia v. EPA, because this is a, a weird case to come before the Supreme Court. And as we go through, and we'll hopefully break down some of those civics lessons, because not all of us think about the Supreme Court and, and federal jurisprudence and the administrative state and blah, blah, blah. We'll try to explain to you why all of this matters and how it relates together. Let's go back in time to a, a friendlier, more peaceful time, the Obama administration. And the Obama administration, under the Clean Air Act, tried to put together its clean power plant. Or one of the parts of the clean power plan was a way to deal with these existing power plants that were then burning a lot of coal and to use the Clean Air Act to regulate these power plants. So the Supreme Court stopped the clean power plan from ever coming into effect. And then by the time the Trump administration came to office, they reversed it and issued their own plan which then has been halted by another federal court. The Dirty Power Plan. The Dirty Power Plan, ACES or something was it was its acronym. Now the Biden administration is saying that it's not going to re-implement the Obama-era Clean Power Plan, and it's not going to implement the Trump plan, and it's going to set forth on its own adventure and create its own new power plan. Important point here, which is that the Trump era plan was ruled illegal, inconsistent with the Clean Air Act on the last day of the Trump administration. And the court in that case held that the Trump administration's EPA had circumscribed its authority in a way that was not reflected in the Clean Air Act itself, that the EPA had adopted too restrictive an interpretation of the Clean Air Act to be allowed to stand. And a lot of what follows is going to be talking about how agencies interpret laws and regulations. But that's the space in which this is happening, is a court found that illegal. So here we are. We're in this weird zone, right, where 
The Obama era clean power plan was never implemented. And actually, we reached the targets of the Obama era clean power plan earlier than ever anticipated because market forces push coal off of our energy plate. And so we've we've met the targets without even ever implementing this plan. Matt. So Tom, those targets were for 2030 and we met them in 2019 without ever doing anything, without any regulation at all. Through the that's invisible hand of the really market. A, that's not a regulation if it's happening 11 years early, right? That's like barely anything at all. You could argue that like it would have been just, yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about how weak it was and how it still got tossed out by a court. So we we don't have the Obama era clean power plan. The Biden administration says that they're not going to go with the blatantly illegal Trump plan and we'll do something else. So, Jen, this legal concept called mootness, can you explain what mootness is and why why are we even hearing this case before the Supreme Court now? Because it doesn't seem like there's anything left to decide, right? Well, if there's no rule in place, many have suggested it's an advisory opinion and it's not justiciable under Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution, that this is a mootness is a justiciability doctrine that just suggests that what has to come before the court needs to be a case or controversy. And something that's moot has no contemporary relevance. If we're looking at a rule that doesn't actually exist, then what is the court actually going to rule over? What is the actual case or controversy? I think that there were questions posed in the oral argument very briefly. There was a lot of people listening very intently to the oral argument to see if the justices were interested in mootness arguments. And there was one question with a very curse answer, and it was not discussed at length during the oral argument. I imagine that the Supreme Court, if they wanted to avoid this issue altogether, one, they could have never taken this case up in the first place, right? That was one option that they had before them. But a majority of Supreme Court justices said, yeah, let's let's get involved. Let's let's dance in this muck. Another option, if they if they realize that this case is not worth getting into later on, is they could just say, oh, it turns out that everything here is moot and we we no longer have the power to to rule on it. Because, as you said, Jen, we we don't issue advisory opinions. That's not the role of the federal judiciary under Article three of our Constitution. Which brings us to the the non mootness ways that the, the court could resolve this. Scott, do you understand this major questions doctrine at all? Can we talk about standing first? Oh, sure. Standing. Let's talk about standing. Go for it. Yeah. There's a a set of questions closely related to mootness and the question of case or controversy that Jennifer just outlined. And that's the, the larger requirement that a plaintiff have standing, that there not only be a case or controversy, but that the plaintiff person bringing the case, the entity or person, have an injury in fact they can articulate. So what's the injury here to the state of West Virginia from this current situation? The Trump plan has been ruled illegal. The Obama plan is no longer in effect and isn't going to be renewed. The Biden administration and environmental groups argued in this case that the court should not have taken this case because the plaintiffs lacked standing, because among other things, there isn't an active case here, but also because they wouldn't suffer an actual injury. And if you flip the case around, it's all too apparent 
that had environmentalists come forward with a parallel challenge, we would never have been allowed in the courthouse. So for for our listeners, you can't see all of us vigorously nodding our heads via Zoom. There is uniform agreement that had the tables been turned, this would have been kicked for lack of standing if environmental plaintiffs well, were to bring it. Yeah, just to drive this point home, environmental plaintiffs usually have to jump through a bunch of hoops to establish standing, right? And here the coal companies are basically saying like the theoretical existence that someday a new rule could come out maybe that would impact us, gives us standing, right? It's such an insane standard, especially when we're used to the standard that environmental plaintiffs are often faced with. It's constitutional Calvin ball, and it's not the only place we're going to see that here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, Jen. I was just going to say, it's sort of questioning the judicial opinions as grounds for just disability, that that's the reason why, because we have this lower opinion by, is it the DC circuit said that the Trump rule did not correctly interpret the Clean Air Act and that the statute indeed did authorize the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, it's a very good opinion if you look at it from a statutory interpretation perspective. And it seems like the question is just because we have a judicial opinion, that's your injury in fact. Right. No, no, you know, if that's an injury, in fact, then we ought to be able to bring a lot of cases that we haven't been able to bring. And I am absolutely certain that that is not what five or six members of the Supreme Court mean here. They mean for thee, but not for me. So I read this case as the latest attack in a long string of attacks by the conservative legal movement on our modern administrative state. Matt, what do I mean by the modern administrative state? Like, what, what, what are we talking about here and why why is administrative law, which sounds so boring, it sounds so bureaucratic, why is this so important to environmental law? Yeah. So the United States has changed a lot since its founding. And ever since the industrial era, laws have started being written differently, right? Where instead of just having a law that says you can or can't do X, right, the law says we're going to create an agency and that agency is going to decide whether you can or can't do X. And here are some instructions to the agency on how to make that decision, right? And so the the Congress has delegated, and I'm, I'm using a trigger word for everyone who knows about this issue. They've delegated some authority, right, to this new thing called an agency to make some decisions about all of our lives. And I think generally conservatives sort of hate this because it makes the government a little bit more nimble and a little bit more able to act And they sort of, their whole ideology is about the government not acting, right? And so to them, this is a disturbing change of the founding. Like we've had some sort of revolution without ever having a revolution and and changing the constitution. But to everyone else, it's like how modern society works and like how we all learn to live together in this totally different world than the founders lived in. Yeah, you were saying, Tom, that this is a long string, string of doctrines and cases that are trying to take apart the administrative state. And I think there's a real question of, like, can we continue to have a modern society without the administrative state? Yeah, the, the modern conservative legal movement seems to be premised on a couple of pillars, one being we hate abortion and the other is we hate the administrative state. And we want to, what was the Reagan line, make government so small that we can drown it in a bathtub? That is the goal. And the, the most effective way that they can do this is to return 
to an era of Supreme Court jurisprudence where they start to invalidate a lot of environmental and other regulations on business through the guise of these made up things that they pretend like are in the Constitution, but aren't really in the Constitution. Let's get to one of those made up things. And this is actually in the Constitution. Jen, what's going on with the non-delegation doctrine and how are conservatives attempting to revive this? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I want to say to answer your question, the non-delegation doctrine essentially is this principle under administrative law that Matt was just describing, where the assumption is that Congress cannot delegate its legislative powers to other branches of government. We have under Article One of the Constitution, powers to legislate shall be solely vested in the Congress. And so I think the non-delegation doctrine takes its authority literally from that language in the Constitution. Congress also has other powers granted to it in the Constitution under necessary and proper clauses to delegate the powers it needs to to fulfill its duties under the Constitution. Those are non-enumerated powers. So you could see it from an alternative perspective, which is not a literal interpretation, which is that Congress does have the authority to delegate power to, say, the executive branch. The concern really is a separation of powers argument and whether there's an overreach of federal authority when too much power gets delegated by Congress to the executive branch. And then we see a judicial restraint on the Article 3 judicial side, where there's this power play between Congress and the agencies under its non-delegation principle. And then you see courts, then this instance and other instances being, you know, reading the Constitution with that same mindset that this this is an over. I think this whole question of, of this case, West Virginia v. EPA, it's about overreach of federal authority. Does the EPA have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases of new and existing power plants? And the court is stepping in in this very precarious way, using its prudential power to say that this is a, essentially someone to call that putting a hatchet down on the EPA's regulatory authority, which was granted to it by Congress to protect public health and welfare. If climate change mitigation does not protect public health and welfare, then what is the EPA supposed to do? What did Congress tell the EPA to do? These are the questions that are raised by this case. And joint at the hip is the major questions doctrine. It seems like the conservative bench is joining these two doctrines together in ways that is really kind of becoming hard for me to differentiate what they even are. Yeah. 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 The non-delegation doctrine seems like it is the product of the past. The last time that we really invoked the non-delegation doctrine to invalidate a, a federal regulation was probably, what, the 1930s? So I feel like we've created this new thing out of whole cloth, the major questions doctrine, which the Supreme Court is treating like it is a long, well-respected precedent. Tom, and- you don't respect FDA v. Brown and Williamson and, and how we can't regulate tobacco going to little children? Yeah. The major questions doctrine? What a, what a good, important law and precedent to uphold. Well, you know, we only respect precedent so long as we like it, right? I think that the abortion cases are, are, are teaching us that. Eco News Report. We are talking about the Supreme Court case, West Virginia versus EPA. Yeah, Scott. The argument about the major powers question and sort of deep idea that, that Congress is somehow messing with the separation of powers required by the Constitution by delegating its powers to executive branch agencies 
a deep question, as Matt suggested, for the modern form of government we use. And I just want to offer a, another quote here from Senator Elizabeth Warren on in the aftermath of the oral argument this past Monday. She said, if the Supreme Court truly honored the rule of law and precedent, then they would acknowledge the power of the agencies that was granted to them by Congress in order to save our environment. But this is an extremist Supreme Court, so I'm very worried about the outcome. She went on to say that she is concerned both about the impacts on the environment here from the specific import of this case and the, the potential limits on the Clean Air Act, but also on this larger question of the ability of agencies to regulate when in the face of a Supreme Court that seems to be picking and choosing what questions are open for effective regulation. And that's really the thing that I keep coming back to. I beg forgiveness for my joke about constitutional Calvin ball, which will have gone past a lot of people who didn't get to read Calvin and Hobbes and its original. Yeah, Calvin and Hobbes is this wonderful comic strip by Bill Waterston that involved a darling little boy, well, demonic little boy in the Dennis the Menace mode and his darling tiger, Hobbes. They played a game called Calvin ball in which the rule was you change the rules every turn. <laughs> And the point is that this is not the rule of law. This is not stare decisis and building on precedent. This is six unelected politicians in robes, maybe five, but at least five, deciding, screw it, we're going to change this and never mind the consequences. As Matt suggested, this is a deep, longstanding agenda for powerful parts of the American right. The Federalist Society has been working for 40 years to put judges on the bench who will roll back the sort of anchors of the administrative state. Clarence Thomas spent 20 years saying nothing on the Supreme Court. Now he talks a lot because he's got partners in this effort. It's difficult to exaggerate how radical these guys are and how consequential these limits could be for our ability to exercise the basic requirements of self-government and the modern era. Just to illustrate that a little bit further, Scott, another example is the mass BEPA case, the, the landmark Supreme Court case, which decided that the EPA needed to make an endangerment finding due climate does carbon pollution and other GHG emissions endanger the public health and welfare? And if they do, the EPA has the power to regulate emissions from new motor vehicles. Well, in that case, Scalia said the Chevron deference should apply, that we should defer to the EPA originally, which decided it didn't have the authority to regulate GHGs for a, a host of reasons that were slammed by the majority of opinion for like not actually being valid reasons at all. So in that case, Scalia said the Chevron deference should apply. Let's defer to the EPA's decision that there's no authority for any justifiable reason to regulate carbon emissions and GHG emissions. Well, now the tide has turned and now we want Chevron deference to apply deference to a decision that was completely deconstructed by the D.C. Circuit saying that the EPA does have the authority. Quickly jumping in here, Chevron deference is something that's really important to us as environmentalists. And it is this idea that when a statute might not be totally clear on its face, that we will defer as courts to the agency that is charged with upholding that statute for its interpretation, as long as it can be said to be reasonable. 
And so here we have what might be construed as an ambiguous statute, although I would say on its face, textually, I would give it to the EPA that they have this power to regulate in the manner that that they chose to do. And so normally we, we would go to this second question, assuming that the Clean Air Act is ambiguous here about regulating existing power plants for greenhouse gas emissions through things like requiring states to adopt more renewable energy in their own. See, it starts to get kind of complicated. It would be a question of the reasonableness of this interpretation, which I think that this is a fairly reasonable interpretation. What the conservative legal movement is doing is that instead of just saying, we got it wrong on Chevron and we want to come up with this new objective test that can be applied throughout our court system for when we will give deference to an agency in its regulatory system. We're just going to create this new thing called the major questions doctrine. And then that is just this tool that we can use whenever it is politically suitable to us to get rid of regulations. So what is the major questions doctrine? That's a great question. That is a major question. As we understand it, based on the few cases that have applied it, it is something along the lines of a question of congressional intent. So that here's a quote from Utility Regulatory Group v. EPA. We expect Congress to speak clearly if it wishes to assign to an agency decisions of, quote, economic and political significance. So it is an entirely ambiguous and arbitrary test. What the heck is something that has vast and political significance? That is something that seems to be up to an individual. Yeah, Matt. Find me a federal regulation that doesn't have vast economic and political significance, right? Like that's that's kind of what we're doing here, right? And so it's such a non-objective, oh, I call it like I see it. I know it when I see it kind of test. And it it gets back to what Scott was saying about this being sort of motivated reason, right? Like they know they don't like what the EPA is doing and they're going to write a rule that gets them to be able to say, oh, this is why the EPA can't do that. And that's where you get the Calvin ball where they're changing the rules all the time. And, and so it's just a, it's just such a disappointing, I mean, if you, if you believe it all in like legal objectivity and like the rule of law, it's like, well, I have a bridge to sell you. <laughs> yeah. Another way of thinking about this would be to say that, to look at the source of Congress's power to regulate so much of American life. And we find that in the Commerce Clause, which says that Congress has the power to regulate commerce between the states. Now, (laughs) if the point here is that Congress has impermissibly delegated that power, I, I guess we're having to make up some rules about that. But the underlying question is that's the source of Congress's power is the ability to affect the economy. What makes that impermissible? Well, the conservatives don't like it when it's about these kind of regulations. You go on record and say, our constitution is stupid. You can quote me on that. Yeah, Matt. So I was going to say a point you hear, and this is, this is in the kind of idea of the major questions doctrine is that you shouldn't be making big decisions without Congress legislating and weighing it, right? But I would I would flip that on them and say, why isn't Congress legislating to rein in an agency, right? Donald Trump was president with majorities in the House and the Senate. They didn't amend the Clean Air Act to make it so that Obama can never pass the Clean Power Plan again, right? Why is that inaction so much different than the inaction on the other side of not writing a new law that makes it more powerful than you think it has to be? I, it's like, it's such an uneven way of thinking about congressional intent and congressional action. 
unless you're a conservative and your prior is that we should never be passing any new laws or doing anything new to protect the health of people, right? And then it makes sense, right? Then it's like, oh, the status quo is then passing new laws and not doing anything to help. <laughs> yeah, so the major questions doctrine just takes the Chevron doctrine of deference and it makes an anti-deference doctrine. Right. Yeah. I suppose in ways to to kill the clean power plan, I would actually like the major questions doctrine more than I would like the return of the non-delegation doctrine in so far as they are separate. So non-delegation says that Congress can't delegate regulatory power to agencies. I, I think that that's, that's the home run that Thomas and Lito want, right? These are our most radical, rabid conservatives. They they would love to say that that there is no such thing as a permissible administrative state. They would go that far. They are crazy people, folks. I, I think that you might see some attempt by like the John Roberts faction of the court, which is him and Kavanaugh, to try to create the major questions doctrine and have that be like the middle ground. So you'll have the Breyer and Kagan and Sotomayor saying, no, everything is fine. And then they're going to they're going to split the baby by saying, oh, what was the problem here was just that Congress didn't explicitly say that this was cool. We need to be more explicit. Stop. Just stop. The, the point and the effect of all of this is going to be to make it impossible for the federal government to act in ways that, as we said at the top of the show, are absolutely vital. We have to act now with increasing vigor, with more of efficacy. And by requiring Congress to act, sorry, everybody turn around, look at Congress acting, right? <laughs> They're basically ensuring that nothing will happen. And that's the place we've been for the last 20 years is with a federal government that's hamstrung at several levels by this coordinated attack. And we have got to cut the cords on this. We've got to get through it. And again, I'm a little overwhelmed by the challenge ahead because it's not just a matter of getting a, a few more Senate votes. We're going to have to expand the court. And to do that is a very big uphill climb. Yeah. And just to go back to the beginning, this is how rapidly they're fighting against the plan that we did anyway without even trying. Right. This yeah. was like the easy stuff of like shutting down old coal plants and replacing them with way more economically efficient natural gas plants. Right. Like this is the stuff free markets do anyway. Right. But to, to, to solve climate change, we're going to actually have to regulate and actually have to change people's lives. And the fact that this is the reaction that the court is giving to like the very tiny regulations that Obama tried to do is not good and really disheartening. Yeah. Yeah, Scott. Look, the, the thing we got to hammer on at this moment, though, is that the combination of events here is not only the Supreme Court hearing this case on Monday and the UN coming out with the IPCC report again on Monday, but of course, Russia's war in Ukraine. And if this combination of events doesn't help us to understand the absolute necessity of moving our civilization off of fossil fuels, then nothing will. But it does offer us an enormous opportunity to do so and to take advantage of the remarkable unity that the world has come to in, just in the last week about the question of Russian aggression. And Russian aggression is tied directly to Russian fossil fuels. So to protect ourselves, we have got to cut ourselves off from those and stop using them. And that makes me hopeful in a strange way. 
the courts do have a role here. I think that this is a resounding consensus among us here that this the courts cannot sit as say quote wallflowers or passive umpires in this instance the courts do have a role to say what the law is under the famous case marbury v madison you know what is the role of the courts we do have three branches of government the role of the courts can we imagine a different role which is not so anti-regulation can we demand that the courts look at say constitutional rights cases like the juliana case brought by youth saying we have a constitutional right to a stable atmosphere protected under the due process clause of the fifth amendment those cases need to come before the court that is their job that their duty and i guess the question becomes is there a role there and does this case quash all hope that there's any possibility that our courts will act in accordance with the rule of law. I'm not willing yet to abandon the courts, but it it does make me want to at least go down that horrible rabbit hole because strategy wise with the current bench, as Scott was alluding to, we don't necessarily have the administrative state in any condition surviving. So what what is the role of the courts is is my question. And and maybe these young people will, in claiming constitutional violations, can reestablish the role of the court in protecting a stable atmosphere. I don't know. I'm hopeful that they might be able to in some venue, even if it's at the state court level. I'll say something about courts. We've talked a little bit about precedent. And for a long time, Supreme Court decision coming down was a really big deal, not just because of the immediate impacts, but because of this idea of precedent and that the, the decisions would stand a long time and, and not be looked, be looked at, even if it was wrong, because of like this idea that it, it should be continuous, right? And there's a lot of other court cases that the Supreme Court is hearing right now where they're talking about throwing out decades-old precedents that have given people rights. And and so this idea that precedent is sacred, I think, is getting thrown out the window a bit. And so I'm hopeful that at some point in the future, probably not soon enough to avoid climate change, Scott, I'm sorry to say, but that we'll have a different Supreme Court that will look at this case and whatever whatever decision they end up coming out with and look at it and say, this is nonsense. What's a major questions doctrine? And throw it out. That's my idea of the role for the courts, is we need different courts to come in and say that what the current court is doing is nonsense. And, you know, just it's nine people, right? It's, it's, it doesn't take that many of them retiring to change the makeup. And so that's, that's the only thing giving me any hope at all. Let's hope that Justice Thomas eats a lot of bacon cheeseburgers and smokes and drinks too much whiskey or something like that. That's my hope. While we have this dying planet, it sometimes creates beautiful weather here on the North Coast. So enjoy the fruits of climate change while we can and go outside and enjoy this beautiful planet. And this has been another episode of the Eco News Report. Join us again on this channel next week at this time for more environmental news from the North Coast of California.